DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with Ignatius Press, presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the writer-in-residence and visiting fellow at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. He's the author of The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. His other books include literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review, a premier international journal of Catholic culture, literature, and ideas. He is the editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, on which this series is based. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Harriet Beecher Stowe was appalled by slavery, and she took one of the few options open to 19th century women who wanted to affect public opinion. She wrote a novel, a huge, enthralling narrative that claimed the heart, soul, and politics of millions of contemporaries. Uncle Tom's Cabin paints pictures of three plantations, each worse than the other, where even the best plantation leaves a slave at the mercy of fate or debt. Her questions remain penetrating even today. Can man ever be trusted with wholly irresponsible power? First published more than 150 years ago, this monumental work is today being re-examined by critics, scholars, and students. Though Uncle Tom has become a synonym for a fawning black yes-man, Stowe's Tom is actually American literature's first black hero, a man who suffers for refusing to obey his oppressors. Uncle Tom's Cabin is a living, relevant story, passionate in its vivid depiction of the cruelest forms of injustice and inhumanity, and the courage it takes to fight against them. We now begin our discussion on Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin. Let's talk about a little lady who did big things, especially with one book, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yes, and an astonishing book. Very few books in history have had such a profound uh, impact politically, not only on the book's own time, but on the world that results from it. The United States uh, as a nation would never, ever be the same again because of the writing and then the publication of this one novel. Unbelievable. Uncle Tom's Cabin. It should be a book that every pupil should read in school. It should be in colleges because of its power and what it was able to do, and yet it's not seen as it should. I think one of the great tragedies of the modern world, and so one of the things which Ignatius Critical Editions is trying to address, is the way that modernity has caused division in society. We talk about postmodernism, but one of the branches of criticism which is uh, explicitly excluded from the Ignatius Critical Editions is Marxism, a Marxist theory, Marxist criticism. Marxism, of course, deliberately endeavors to alienate the poorer sections of society from other sections of society in order to foment political revolution, in order to bring about what they per- they perceive will be justice. Of course, there's no historical evidence at all for that happening. In fact, there's through Stalin and Pol Pot and Mousy tongue, uh, an abundance of evidence that all that happens is tyranny. But one of the consequences of Marxism is that books such as Uncle Tom's Cabin, that really should be a source and a cause 
of unity amongst the American people is actually a cause of division. Uncle Tom, who's a Christ figure, who's a very benign figure, a figure that everybody should respect for his courage and for his Christianity, white or black, is a cause of division, where uh, somehow, say, through this fermenting of race war on the part of the Marxists, black pride now considers Uncle Tom to be too much of a passive figure. They'd rather have a revolutionary figure like Marcus Garvey, black power, rather than someone like Uncle Tom, who leads by example, who shows by example, who lays down his life for his friends, a Christian witness to the unity of humanity, as opposed to these figures that ferment rebellion, division, destruction. Just the formation of this book and its author, she's also a part of the story. In the background, the extraordinary nature of her accomplishment in this work you look at the beginning of the 1800s, and here we have again the example of the serial in the journal, in the newsprint. The serialization of this particular story, that had a profound effect on its impact on the hearts of so many different Americans, didn't it? Yes, it was being read by huge numbers of people in its serialized form over a period of, I think, about 10 months in the 1850s, early early 1850s, about 10 years before the war began. And of course, this built up the appetite so that when the book was published in a single volume later in, in 1852, I think it was, that it sold, it first of all, it sold out within a week, I think, the initial print run. Wow. And then within a few years, uh, had sold you know, hundreds of thousands of copies, was translated into 40 different languages. And eventually, even during the author's own lifetime saw millions of copies. So you have this initial appetite being fed by the civilization uh, and then that creating a demand. And then when the book's published in its single volume form, it becomes an instant international bestseller. I know, for instance, I mean, I read somewhere, I think I read it in the Ignatius Critical Edition, funnily enough, that in the first year or something after initial publication, more copies were actually sold in the United Kingdom than in the United States. Wow. Um, so it really had a, had a global impact, not just an impact in, in America itself. Harriet Beecher Stowe, who is this woman? <laughs> well, one, I think one of the most encouraging things about this whole novel and this novelist is how one person can make such an impact on society, uh, and particularly in an evangelical sense, because she was certainly planning to evangelize. She was the daughter of a congregational minister, one of 13 children, and we made a devout evangelical Christian throughout the whole of her life. When she got married, she had seven children herself. So this is a family woman, the antithesis of the sort of life-denying woman that feminism sets up for us, that nonetheless does far more to change the world than any, any feminist author has, has ever managed. Because she took it upon herself by being outraged by the fact that human beings were enslaving other human beings and treating them as cattle basically without any political rights or any human freedom and she wrote this novel as a means of drawing public awareness to this outrage that people were taking for granted and people were accepting or they or at least they weren't motivated to do anything about it even if they were uncomfortable with the reality so she single-handedly writes this you know mammoth novel it's not it's not a short work I say first of all in serial form and then makes this bestseller which uh has an, uh, such an impact, and of course it was certainly a contributing factor in solidifying the attitudes of, of Americans against slavery. 
and that of course precipitating the struggle of the war in the following decade and they say it's it, whether it's true or not you know abraham lincoln is supposed to have said that is this the little lady that started the big war or worse to that effect i believe i read as well in the ignatius critical editions that this particular work for her she felt was divinely inspired that it was actually in a moment of prayer where she had this overwhelming sense this needs to be written this is how you will write it and she felt it was all grace and she always gave glory to god in that grace yeah we were discussing this earlier actually and i think you mentioned that the moment of inspiration for the novel came during communion she converted from congregationalism to Episcopalianism. Mm -hmm. And you said it's during a moment of divine inspiration following communion. That in itself shows that the evangelical zeal of the author, but the conviction that she has that this was something which was a a work of God that uh, divinely inspired, something that she needed to do as her duty as a Christian to evangelize her culture and, of course, to liberate so many of her fellow human beings from slavery. Unlike her wonderful father and her brothers, who were known as the great congregationalists who would go from town to town in some cases or from their pulpit and preach, not unlike Billy Graham, like we're familiar with today, with the power and the fire from a pulpit, she instead, again, tells a story and presents people and images Can you imagine, Joseph, what it was like when people would run out and get these weeklies and race home and sit around the fire with their family and tell the story and fall in love with the people? Absolutely. And let's think about this again. I mean, heaven forbid that we should say anything against uh, the evangelical zeal of those who go and preach uh, on the street or obviously from the pulpit or on Catholic radio Mm -hmm. or, you know, EWTN. These are all very powerful ministries. But, you know, one imagines however influential Beecher Stowe's father and brother were as leaders of this great Christian revival. They were talking to hundreds of people at a time. And she writes a novel that reaches uh, tens of millions around the world. And as Abraham Lincoln said, one of the major influences on the ending of slavery. Again, we see, you know, we, we see continually throughout these Ignatius critical editions that we've been discussing, the power of great literature to make great changes to society and more to the point the power of great literature to change hearts and souls and to convert people from agnosticism atheism cynicism towards uh, virtue and christianity uncle tom's cabin by harriet beecher stowe chapter nine at this critical juncture old cudjo the black man of all work put his head in at the door and wished Mrs. would come into the kitchen. And our senator, tolerably relieved, looked after his little wife with a whimsical mixture of amusement and vexation, and, seating himself in the armchair, began to read the papers. After a moment his wife's voice was heard at the door in a quick, earnest tone. John! John, I do wish you'd come here a moment. He laid down his paper, and went into the kitchen, and started, quite amazed at the sight that presented itself. A young and slender woman, with garments torn and frozen, with one shoe gone, and the stocking torn away from the cut and bleeding foot, was laid back in a deadly swoon upon two chairs. There was the impress of the despised race on her face, yet none could help feeling its mournful and pathetic beauty, while its stony sharpness, its cold, fixed, deathly aspect, 
struck a solemn chill over him. He drew his breath short and stood in silence. His wife and their only colored domestic, old Aunt Dinah, were busily engaged in restorative measures, while old Cudjo had got the boy on his knee and was busy pulling off his shoes and stockings and chafing his little cold feet. "'Sure now, if she ain't a sight to behold,' said old Dinah compassionately. "'Pears like twas the heat that made her faint. She was tolerable pert when she come in and asked if she couldn't warm herself here a spell, and I was just a-askin' her where she come from, and she fainted right down. Never done much hard work, yes, by the looks of her hands.' "'Poor creature,' said Mrs. Bird compassionately, as the woman slowly unclosed her large, dark eyes and looked vacantly at her. Suddenly an expression of agony crossed her face, and she sprang up, saying, "'Oh, my Harry, have they got him?' The boy, at this, jumped from Cudjo's knee, and running to her side, put up his arms. "'Oh, he's here, he's here!' she exclaimed. "'Oh, ma'am,' she said wildly to Mrs. Bird, "'do protect us. Don't let them get him.' "'Nobody shall hurt you here, poor woman,' said Mrs. Bird encouragingly. "'You are safe. Don't be afraid.' "'God bless you,' said the woman, covering her face and sobbing, while the little boy, seeing her crying, tried to get into her lap. With many gentle and womanly offices, which none knew better how to render than Mrs. Bird, the poor woman was in time rendered more calm. "'I needn't be afraid of anything. We are friends here, poor woman. Tell me where you came from and what you want,' said she. "'I came from Kentucky,' said the woman. "'When?' said Mr. Bird, taking up the interrogatory. "'Tonight.' "'How did you come?' "'I crossed on the ice.' "'Crossed on the ice,' said every one present. "'Yes,' said the woman slowly, "'I did. God helping me, I crossed on the ice, for they were behind me, right behind, and there was no other way.' "'Law, missus,' said Cudjo, "'the ice is all in broken-up blocks, a-swinging and a-teetering up and down the river.' "'I know it was, I know it,' said she wildly. "'But I did it. I wouldn't have thought I could. I didn't think I could get over.' But I didn't care. I could but die if I didn't. The Lord helped me. Nobody knows how much the Lord can help them till they try," said the woman, with a flashing eye. "'Were you a slave?' said Mr. Bird. "'Yes, sir. I belonged to a man in Kentucky.' "'Was he unkind to you?' "'No, sir. He was a good master.' "'And was your mistress unkind to you?' "'No, sir. No. My mistress was always good to me.' "'What could induce you to leave a good home, then, and—' run away and go through such dangers." The woman looked up at Mrs. Bird with a keen, scrutinizing glance, and it did not escape her that she was dressed in deep mourning. "'Ma'am,' she said, suddenly, "'have you ever lost a child?' The question was unexpected, and it was thrust on a new wound, for it was only a month since a darling child of the family had been laid in the grave. Mr. Bird turned around and walked to the window and Mrs. Bird burst into tears, but, recovering her voice, she said, "'Why do you ask that? I have lost a little one. And you will feel for me. I have lost two, one after another, left them buried there when I came away, and I had only this one left. I never slept a night without him. He was all I had. He was my comfort and pride, day and night, and, ma'am, they were going to take him away from me, to sell him, sell him down south, ma'am, to go all alone, a baby 
that had never been away from his mother in his life. I couldn't stand it, ma'am. I knew I never should be good for anything if they did, and when I knew the papers, the papers were signed, and he was sold, I took him and came off in the night, and they chased me, the man that brought him, and some of Massa's folks, and they were coming down right behind me, and I heard him. I jumped right on to the ice, and how I got across, I don't know. But first I knew a man was helping me up the bank. The woman did not sob nor weep. She had gone to a place where tears are dry. But every one around her was, in some way characteristic of themselves, showing signs of hearty sympathy. She's very maternal nurturing in how she describes the characters in their desire to do good, but also there's that great beyond sadness, almost the sorrow, when they turn around and walk away. When presented with the opportunity to do good, they fail to respond. That's the heartbreak of the novel. One of the, one of the seven deadly sins, which is uh, so often overlooked and forgotten about, is the sin of sloth. Mm. You know, the sin of not doing what we should, and the sin of omission. I think it was this apathy, the inertia that was the, re- the result of this apathy was what inspired uh, Beecher Stowe to write this novel. How do we overcome this inertia? How do we overcome this apathy? How do we get people to act? And with that sort of zeal, she approached this novel and produced what she did produce. And it still holds up. It's not just a quote-unquote romanticized or soap opera-like type of tale. The moral elements, the response of the human heart, it still is something that we're challenged with now. Right. The essential ingredients, the essential nature, to be more precise, of what it is to be human is unchanging throughout the whole of human history, which is why we can read Homer and be moved by Penelope's chastity, for instance. So the essential nature of humanity is unchanging. Therefore, in a good story, where that human nature, in its interactions, be it with God or our fellow man, our virtuous interactions, our non-virtuous interactions, our failures, our successes, our nobility, our ignobility, these speak to every generation and will continue to speak to every generation because there's something intrinsically true. And that's the whole point, that fiction contains things that are intrinsically true and speak from heart to heart and mind to mind. That's another reason why the characters are so compelling. And again, the story of Uncle Tom, but also little Eva, the child who dies. From what I've read around the country, when that occurred in the serialization, there was a collective wailing around the country. And yet, it's from the heart. I mean, it's because they were experiencing, they were getting to know somebody in a way that the world hadn't really had that kind of mass communication before. Right, absolutely. And and there was a sense of, uh, should we say, communal catharsis, where we can all mm. experience common joy or a common sadness by an event. Now, that can be an event in, in history. I mean, 9-11 would be something that springs to mind in recent American history. But that's also true of a great work of literature. If it's something that's been experienced by enough people, then it changes the culture so that we actually think about certain aspects in the light of that work of art from now on, that work of literature from now on. It doesn't change our perception. It enlightens our perception. It allows us to see more clearly. The character of Uncle Tom also is one that, because of the way that he is treated and ultimately treated, it 
should be that cry of how can kindness be brutalized? And it put, again, a human face on what was being considered subhuman. Well, absolutely. And even more than that, it was actually putting a black face on the face of Christ. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Uncle Tom at the end becomes a Christ figure. When he is killed by Simon Legree, by his malicious, addictive, sadistic owner, he's put to death, refusing to betray his friends. We can't help but be reminded of the scourging and the passion of Christ. So in the sense that Uncle Tom is a Christ figure, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe puts a black face on the face of Christ. And that, to a religious Christian American public, will be a very, very powerful force to understand, well, you know, Christ is in chains. We've put Christ in chains. We've sold Christ for for 30 pieces of silver. Because, you know, that whenever you see a prisoner or a poor man, you're seeing Christ, and Christ himself tells us that. So Harriet Beecher Stowe, through her own Christianity, communicating that Christianity to her fellow Americans, and using this almost iconography, typological approach to understanding a Christ figure, presenting it as an icon of a black Christ being crucified, this is going to have and did have a profound impact upon her own culture, which actually actively changed that culture. It points out repeatedly the hypocrisy of those who feel legitimately they have a Christ heart, that they are good, we are good, we are kind, but yet when the moment comes and faced with it, the true moment of action comes, they fail. Well, there's a famous saying, I think it was by Edmund Burke, that's all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for, for good men to do nothing. So, yes, the, the, if you have a society of, of good men, you know, who perhaps go to church, who would consider themselves to be Christians, if you ask them, they would say they're Christians, but essentially do nothing in the time of a great crisis. I mean, today we might think about abortion. Mm. When you have mass infanticide and millions of unborn babies being put to death, we have this outrage of Herod going on in the very midst, and that good people do nothing. And that's what's necessary for the triumph of evil. So what's true of, of abortion today was obviously true of the situation of slavery, you know, 150 years ago. And uh, what Harriet Beecher Stowe is uh, challenging us to do with that novel is that basically doing nothing is not an option. That do, Doing nothing is really taking away your claim to be good because if you're failing to do anything in a crisis like this, you're contributing towards the evil. And that's what was so jarring because of that, the power of the book, the power of the novel or the story in this particular case through the serialization that would become the novel, you get caught up in it. And before you know it, you're at this wave at the crest. And that's the glory of reading when it's something really good because it brings you to a point you didn't expect. And it can help in a conversion of your own heart, can it? Absolutely, because you know, ultimately what impacts us in our lives are the people we meet. You know, that we can be changed by the people we meet. If we're unfortunate enough to have parents that abuse us, that we can be changed in a bad way that may scar us for life, may actually impact our ability to, to grow into the fullness of the people we're meant to be. On the other hand, of course, when we, when we come across saints and people that are living holy and virtuous lives and self-sacrificial lives, that can inspire us and change us too in, in the right direction. Well, the point is we don't only meet people in our daily lives. We meet people in literature. And we can be reading Uncle Tom's Cabin and 
fall in love with characters in there because of their virtue, because of their self-sacrifice, or we could feel for them in their suffering. And we're meeting those people. And meeting those people can have a profound effect and impact in changing our lives. Yeah, the fact that this would be tremendous seller throughout the world and at least in english-speaking countries where it was available at that time that really i mean it says the power of this work the fact that it boggles my mind sometimes joseph when i encounter people and forgive me if it seems judgmental but i see them walking into contemporary bookstores and spending thirty dollars trying to find something good to read and it's a historical novel and when they've overlooked this piece because maybe I was forced to read it in high school, but it's time to revisit this now. Well, yeah, it's, it's also it's time to grow up. I mean, I, I mm. was taught Romeo and Juliet very badly at high school. I was taught the uh, the war poets, particularly Wilfred Owen, very badly at high school, and it could and should have been enough to, to put anybody off for life. But you know, a part of growing up is to revisit things as an adult when no one's forcing you to do it, and particularly bad teachers who are teaching you it badly, and rediscover the beauty. Why should we allow ourselves to be excommunicated from these great mm-hmm. works of Western civilization merely because some horrific teacher taught it horrifically when we were teenagers. I mean, we have to overcome that barrier and revisit these works now that we're adults, mm-hmm. now that we've grown up, and see them for the profound works of art that they are. The Ignatius Critical Editions as well, the essays that are contained within it. And I was struck with Uncle Tom's Cabin, the revisiting of some of the reviews, like in particular the one by George Sun on this particular work, the fact that you would go to the reviewers of the novel of the time and the impact that it had then. Absolutely. And again, I, I want to mention the editor of that edition, Mary Reichardt, who's done a wonderful job with this. It was her that decided to, to publish that particular essay by George Sand. Here I could put myself in the position of the reader of the Ignatius Critical Edition and not the series editor as such. Because yes, I did oversee the final getting ready for publication of it as series editor but i am not an american literature person uncle tom's cabin is not a work i know very well so to be able to pick up ignatius critical edition to be able to have the new notes that mary weichardt prepared for the text to have her introduction at my fingertips and to have these wonderful essays she's assembled with it is a perfect way for me to get to know this great work of American literature better. Because in these works, you know, I need to read the Ignatius Traditions so that I can become myself aware of these priceless jewels of our heritage. That's right. So just encourage people, again, to go out, whether it's in reading groups. It's the perfect book for a reading group. It's a perfect book for study in homeschool situations. Or I would venture and say even beyond homeschool, just in the family situation, to once again gather around and read together as a family. I, I would agree completely. Even, even if your family uh, are not formally homeschooling, I think reading time together as a family is invaluable. And uh, if you want some structures to that reading time, then you could do no better than to select this series as the books that you read. And imagine if we did what was done in America all those years ago and gathered together as a family, how it can change the hearts of our children as they are growing in their moral development to do the same kind of method where you teach them not only the reasons, but then give them examples through literature of how they can practice this out. And to bestow upon them these wonderful jewels of our Western civilization. These books in this series are books that everybody should be reading. Everybody in the world should be reading because these are the pillars 
of Western civilization. These are the, the great fruits of Western civilization. We should all be reading these. And of course, if we're parents, we talk about sins of omission as regards people doing nothing to end slavery. Well, you know, as parents, these, these would be sins of omission. If we do not introduce our children to these great works of Western civilization, then we are failing them. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. To find more books in the Ignatius Critical Editions, visit ignatius.com, the website for the publisher, Ignatius Press. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com in cooperation with Ignatius Press. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join us next time for Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.